Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Thursday, November 28th, 2019. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and on today's episode, we're going to present a special interview with Anthony and Joe Russo, the producers of the Chadwick Boseman action thriller 21 Bridges, and also you might know them as, uh, you know, the directors of the biggest movie of all time, Adjusted for Inflation, which is, of course, Avengers Endgame. So this uh, interview is coming on a special day. This is Thanksgiving, obviously. Happy Thanksgiving to everyone. The Slashfilm staff has the day off, but there's a ton of content going up at Slashfilm.com today, so be sure to head over there and check that out if you're listening to this. If you're in a turkey-induced coma, please head over there and, uh, and check that out. But uh, yeah, we wanted to keep the podcast streak alive today, so I'm recording this a couple days in advance, but uh, Jack Giroux, Slash Film's interviewer at large, was kind enough to send over the audio for his discussion with the Russo brothers. So he spoke to them uh, to promote the release of 21 Bridges, which came out recently, and Jack spoke to the Russos about how they want to keep challenging themselves in a post-Avengers Endgame world, how they want to release their directorial debut one day, which is a very, very small movie, it's really tough to find. Uh, They talked a little bit about Happy Endings, which is the great great show on ABC that was canceled before its time, I think, but um, still a a tremendous comedy that uh, continues to endure today. They talked a little bit about that show's legacy and a bunch of other stuff, too. So here is Jack Giroux's conversation with Anthony and Joe Russo. How does it compare promoting a movie you produce like 21 Bridges to the long haul of promoting an Avengers movie? How are these questions different? (laughs) I mean, it it is different. Look, Look, we care certainly as much about this movie as uh, we care about any movie we've directed but um, we are slightly less central to the to, to the to the process as a producer you know um, than we are in our, in our self-directed films so there is a little bit of yeah it is a slightly slightly less weight to carry I mean maybe part of the reason too is 21 bridges is just you know the la- the last Marvel movies were coming off of were so large in scope. Mm-hmm. The comparison of like the amount amount of weight you're carrying with those films is, is pretty immense. But uh, you know we're having a blast. I mean, Twenty One Bridges is a, is a it, we're very very proud of the movie. We love the film, and so it's a very easy fil- film to talk about. 
Yeah. By the way, it's a really nice and tight thriller, I thought, with like really cool. creative action. <laughs> That's yeah. cool. And That's I was wondering, cool. like, was the scope a big part of the appeal, just to like have a breather and go to something a little more uh, contained? <coughs> yeah, I mean, it's always great to just be able to point the camera at real things and have people yeah. act and, and put truthful performances on the film. But, you know, we, we were emotionally motivated to make the film because we grew up on genre movies. Our father was a genre film buff. We used to watch The Late Show with him uh, at night as kids, and we'd watch movies like The French Connection or Dog Day Afternoon or and Justice for All, taking Pelham 1, 2, 3, these sort of hard-boiled New York crime stories. And, uh, you know, we just felt like we hadn't seen one of those in a long time. <clears throat> and we wanted to use our, our resources and our creative conviction to get a movie like this made. How tough are movies like this to get made? Like, Very difficult. Even with your success at their Avengers, do you guys yeah. still find trouble getting contained stories like this done? Uh, I think yeah. I I think so, but I also think that too that you know, cinema's evolving and mm -hmm. uh, and storytelling is evolving, and I think that you know, the digital distribution has also, you know, allowed uh, um, better stories to be told at greater volume than has ever been in history, and so not everything needs to be a movie anymore. Sometimes it's great to tell a story in ten parts, you know, in ten hours, you know, ten one hour segments. Uh, sometimes it serves the story better, and I think that audiences are, are, are getting are becoming more passionate about those kinds of stories. I think that the success of the Marvel Universe is a testament to that. It's sort of these long-form stories that involve years of your life, because the more emotional commitment you give to that story, the more profound uh, uh, impact it can have on you. So, you know, everything is, is for different reasons, but, you know, I, I think that, you know, this movie is very cinematic in, a, in the fact that it, you know, it has very current issues it's dealing with. It's got a lot of social context to it. It asks important questions. It doesn't give you answers, but it asks them. Uh, the action's great. It's amazing performances. It's New York at night, you know. So I do think that there's, there, there, when we looked at it, we went, this belongs in the theater, but there are other things that come across our desk that we go, no, this should be 10 hours, uh, mm. uh, or this should be a, a show, because it, it, it would be fun to spend that kind of time, or years with these characters. They're that interesting. Right. Did you guys shoot this in New York, or was it... Philadelphia and New York. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, so both. Logistically, what was that like? It, it, well, look, it, here's the thing. New York, again, is so complicated to control. So a lot of times for some of our bigger action sequences... Um, certainly, wanted, we wanted to capture real locations in New York and the scope of New York. We found a way to do that, but controlling New York—it's just much easier to control sections of Philly than sections of New York. So, on a functional level, and we had a similar experience when we were making Captain America: Winter Soldier. That movie was almost entirely set in Washington D.C., but shooting in Washington D.C. is extremely yeah. difficult. So, but from there, it's terrible. You are, yeah, yeah, it's terrible, right? They—they they have, they have better things to do than help help <laughs> you with your movie. So, we ended up shooting uh, doubling Cleveland for D.C. Um, and while well, we did so certainly did several days in, in DC, but it's a similar model to this, um, where uh, but I think we did a lot more shooting in New York than we, we did in DC. Um, but yeah, it really just becomes a question of like functionality, especially when you're using action. Right. Your names as producers just carries a lot of weight now, and I was just wondering what how does that kind of influence the choices you guys make of like artists you want to back or stories you want to get behind? Well, it's just look at them. We're, we nothing can make us happier that, that that we could lend energy to other creative people trying trying to make things. I mean, because that's how we were brought into the business in the first place. You know, we uh, we made our, our very first movie a small little credit card movie. Pieces, right? Yeah, pieces yeah. went to the Slam Dance Film Festival. And Steven Soderbergh saw the movie there. Nobody else responded to that movie. Nobody. Steven did. For some reason, he saw something in it that he found creatively exciting, reached out to us, offered to help us make another movie. So 
like our whole road forward literally manifested itself at that moment. Nobody else was interested. So we, we, we think it's an ama amazing opportunity and amazing responsibility to be able to like provide uh, in that way for other creative people. And Nagbo, our new company, is certainly like I, the entire, our entire instinct to start that company was really to be able to do that on a larger and larger scale. Um, so yeah, we, the, the, our entire process is simply to run at either stories that inspire us or people, creative people that inspire us and figure out how we build um, films around that. I was wondering, can you find pieces online anywhere? Is it available no, to watch? No, yeah. it was we never released really We no. made the movie with no understanding of film business whatsoever. We loaded the film with music that we cut very specifically to. <laughs> but that is the right unaffordable. And so, the, yeah, so we were never able to really sort out, sort that out. Or do you someday we'll just dump it on there. Yeah. Yeah. You think so? Do you guys still have it in like a garage? Yeah, we do. Yeah, 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 we just, yeah. Uh, uh, we just did some refurbishment to the uh, negative and... You know, I mean, I was sitting like in my basement. We're, tr we're trying to get it in shape to someday. <laughs> <laughs> Looking at the guys you were when you made pieces and welcome to Collingwood, like, how do you see yourself as filmmakers then versus now? Like, like who do you guys I see I think that? we're still riotous. We still, we still like subversive ideas. You know, uh, pieces. Part of the reason Soderbergh was the only one to respond to it is because it was a very subversive movie. It was nonlinear in structure. It was really Brechtian in its execution. It was kind of a batshit film, and not dissimilar to. Um, uh, his films, Gazopolis. Yeah. You know, it was just really, this is, like we said, a, a riotous sort of exploration of movie making. It's points we would cut to lines in the script, you know, in pieces. It was um, very self conscious. Uh, so we still have that element to us. We're just, you know, Cleveland's got a bit of punk rock to it. It was going bankrupt when we were growing up. Our dad was an activist politician. Social issues were important to us. So, you know, we have this element to us that will never shake. Uh, but obviously you become more accomplished and I think what's really important is your collaborators are more accomplished and you collect you know we have some of the best people in the world that we work with continually now um, from our DPs to our camera operators to our composers to our editors to the cast that we're working with I mean it's amazing when you're, you want to you, you want to work on a project and you can pick up the phone and call Chadwick Boseman and say hey we have this this really cool cop thriller that we, you think you should you would be great for changes everything so I think that's probably the, the most important difference between then and now. Right, this is kind of random. One, congratulations on how much I'm giving. That is an incredible accomplishment for the both of you. Thank you. And I was wondering, like, what changes, you mentioned professionally, but personally, when you hit that high of a bar, like, does it change you in any way when you get that level of success? Is yeah. there like a comfort that follows that? You know what's so fun? It's a really funny question because at the same time, you know, I feel like our process is the same today as when we've started pieces. You know, it's like filmmaking is always the same process. You just come up with a vision and you find a way to realize it. And I feel like we just keep repeating that cycle over and over again, no matter what our circumstances are. Um, I think if anything, like our experience with Endgame, it, it was a reaffirmation in the possibilities of cinema, the idea that you can, you can do anything if you, if you, if you try. And um, I think, so I think, I think it's sort of, it, it, the, yeah, I think it's given us an energy to keep moving forward and keep chasing difficult things and difficult ideas because there there may be some sort of uh, end of the rainbow mm -hmm. with any and there's a value in doing that um, and there's a road forward for all kinds of projects. I mean, who would have ever thought that this fringe um, pop culture art form that w we enjoyed as kids that was never very mainstream would all of a sudden end up being the source material for 
the most uh, successful film ever made. Like you could have never predicted that, right? So I think that's the that's the lesson going forward for us. Does it also affirm just your instincts when you have that many people connect to the choices you guys make as storytellers? Does it make you feel like you're on the right path? Oh, it certainly does. I mean, I think look, we you know. We define cinema as a communal experience, right? And can you foster a communal experience? That's the whole point of it, right? It's getting people to go out together and, uh, and sit in a movie theater and have a profound experience together. And, uh, and I think, you know, that, that's been our goal all along. And you look at all the stories that we've told, they're about communities, you know, literally and figuratively. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's why we work with ensembles all the time, is come from a large Italian family with a lot of complicated people in it. And that's the way we perceive the world is that, the, you know, lots of people have different points of view and, and you know, uh, every day is about a conflict of ideas and, uh, and can you find common ground or not. So, you know, without, without question, you know, you, you look at that as an affirmation that, you know, that, the, that what we believe about stories is true and that, uh, uh, you know, we were in those theaters and we heard the audible sobs and the cheers and, the, you know, we'd never guys who were cinephiles growing up and have seen thousands and thousands of movies and movie theaters, never seen anything like that. <clears throat> and that was special to us and that really spoke to, you know, why we became filmmakers in the first place as guys who just, you know, two brothers who loved arguing about movies every day, uh, you know, and, and, and we could take that love and convert it into a, a story that, that moved people around the world and brought them together like that. Right, and obviously, first and foremost, you just want to tell cool stories. But I do wonder, like, I look at a guy like James Cameron, and I see someone that wants to tell the best stories, but also be the best, like, right. be number one. <laughs> right. I was wondering, like, there's nothing, That's wrong. Awesome. Yeah, there's nothing wrong to me, like, wanting success. And I was just wondering, like, even just outside creativity, like, is there, like, a hunger for success for you guys, or just reaching the top? It's an interesting question. I don't know. Well, it's, it's never like, something we set out to do, which is why I think our career path has been more unique than most people's career path we're not you know I mean I think it's a I think it comes from like this recognition that like cinema is so like you can make a movie as a filmmaker right but all we can do as filmmakers is make a movie that we like mm -hmm. then we can put it out in the world we have no idea this kind of goes back to your point earlier about uh, whether we have confidence in our in, in sort of our instincts it's like all we can control is whether or not we like the movie. We cannot control whether or not anyone else is going to like the movie. You, you can't really aspire to how the world is going to perceive you, you know, at the end of the day, because you don't control that. All you control is what you do. All we control is the movie that we no, make. You know, what, wherever that leaves us, whatever value that ends up earning us to anybody beyond ourselves, we have no control over right. that. You I mean, know we grew I mean? up so on art house cinema and a lot of foreign film, and that was really important to us. But we also love genre movies. We love populist films like The Godfather and Star Wars and Jaws, and as much as anybody. I think we didn't. We ne We we did not. We were not interested in choosing a path uh, as a, a you know um, self indulgent filmmakers. That was never interesting to us. It was like pure art house, fair. But we're also too quirky, I think, to be populist at mm. the same time, which is why it's been a 20-year journey to make a movie like Avengers Endgame for us because we had to make the Arrested Developments and the Communities and the Welcome to Collinwoods uh, before we could make movies like Winter Soldier and Civil War and Infinity War and Endgame. Um, it just, uh, it, you know, we had to figure out a path forward that, you know, was both satisfying to us every day uh, to get out of bed and, and, uh, and work. Uh, uh, but also at the same time that, that we felt uh, was, was, you know, communicating our, our thoughts and our feelings about the world audiences. Um, so it's, you know, we, you know, it wasn't, 
it wasn't premeditated mm -hmm. you know it was really just a function of like you know what what is tomorrow going to bring us and how do we challenge ourselves in a new and interesting way uh, um, uh, you know with each project that uh, that, that we work on great cast one quick last question last one sure my favorite thing that you guys have done though happy endings oh, i just love that so show cool so here. much oh, and i just so want to ask good. like do you guys know what the end game was for that show like where those characters would have ended up in <laughs> can you just tell me about your experience on it i mean cast yeah. would be would be better at answering that than we would but you know it was one of our favorites as well i think it was it had a social consciousness to it, you know. I thought Adam Pally's character was one of the more yeah, interesting really characters that had been on network television, you know, and uh, yeah. and the way that he played that character was really unique. Um, but it had a lot of great ideas, and I think that's why people still respond to it because there was a warmth and a wit uh, that very few shows combined together. Uh, you know, I'd say that you know, Arrested Development is very caustic. You know? <laughs> Very existential. Uh, a lot of pain. Yeah. yeah. Happy endings has like you know, you know, it has that level of wit, but it also brings with it a sense of heart at the same time. Yeah, I think that's what it was with happy endings. Just this fun-loving irreverence that I think is just so infectious and appealing. You know, that's that uh, I think that that part of it endures. So. That, that, I don't know where those characters would be, but somewhere in that zone still. Oh, <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, exactly. <laughs> cool. So, well, thanks, guys. Really right, appreciate it. Thank you so much. That was great. Yeah, thanks, thank you. Thanks. All right. Hopefully you enjoyed that, and hopefully you're enjoying your Thanksgiving holiday. So thank you so much for listening. You can find more about the Russo brothers and all of their projects at SlashFilm.com and linked inside the show notes of this episode. SlashFilm Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps, and send your feedback, questions, comments, and concerns to us at peter at SlashFilm.com. Please make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention it on the air, and also don't forget to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends, spread the word, and we will talk to you tomorrow.